Before Pastor Bob comes to deliver his message, allow me to share with you from God's word this morning. We're starting a new sermon series today on the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read a fairly large portion of the first two chapters together to set the stage. You may remain seated for now, and I'll ask you to stand and read along with me at the appropriate time. So our reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 31, and chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. It will be on the screen for you as well. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in, <clears throat> excuse me, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Would you please stand and join me as we read the following verses together? For the word of God of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, 
For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'd like to now direct your attention to the screen as we watch a brief video that sets up our new sermon series, Detoxicity. There is something wrong with the world. Can you see it? Do you feel it? It's all over the internet, on our news feeds, in our relationships. Things are just wrong, and they are getting worse. Society has become, in a word, toxic. But the gospel has an antidote. You see, some of you were once like that. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of our God. everybody welcome 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 to week one of our series on detoxicity we're so glad that you're here this is going to be a good one and you know what we're starting out today talking about the toxic nature of our culture and so we're glad that you're here with us uh, this morning throughout the series we're going to answer two questions first as you gather from the video we're going to talk about what's wrong with the world and then we're going to talk about what to do with it what to do about it. Now, since we're wading into some toxic waters this morning, I thought I would wear some protection. I don't know if you noticed there's anything different about me. Uh, some of you wish you had this gear on your face because uh, you might think, you know what, <clears throat> Pastor Bob, some of you think I'm a little weird, but others of you are saying to yourself, you know what, I need a mask like this whenever I leave the house because my workplace is filled with toxic people. My school is filled with toxic ideas. Even when I'm in my house, sometimes I turn on the news and I feel like, Toxic. Just everything's toxic. Toxic is everywhere. And so those situations oftentimes call for a symbolic mask to be worn. Ah. All right, good. I kept it on that time. There you go. <laughs> well, it's worth asking the question, just as I take that off, why would somebody wear a mask like this? In, in what situations is a mask like this warranted because some of you are saying that you look ridiculous why would you do that well this mask is meant to be worn when there's toxins in the air and sometimes those toxins are dangerous and other times they're more dangerous than others let me give you an example as we start here today does anybody know who this is right this is Bashir al-Assad and if you don't know who he is he's the dictatorial leader of Syria and from 2012 onward he has used chemical weapons on his own people now, chemical weapons include things like nerve gas and chlorine gas and hydrogen cyanide. And what they do is they prevent cells from absorbing oxygen, which causes suffocation. They are toxic, horrific weapons. And if you come in contact with them, you want to be wearing something like this. Because if you're not, you're doomed. Wearing a, wearing a, you need to wear a more protective mask than this one. Now, we might not live in Syria, but as we start our series today, what I want to talk with you about is... Um, you know, we're not living where there's actual chemical weapons being used, but we live in a world filled with what I'm going to call cultural chemical weapons. And so as the video asked in the opening, something's wrong with the world. Can, can you feel it? Right? Can you feel that there's something wrong with the world? I know so many of us do. So where do we see cultural chemical weapons? Let me just give you a couple examples to get your mind started today. How about social media? Right? The technology that was supposed to make us more connected has actually been really effective at tearing us apart. You know, people will argue over anything or everything to make a point. Um, how about politics, right? Everybody agrees on politics nowadays, right? Now, if there's any area of life that's, that's not tainted by politics, you say, that no, it's going to be tainted at some point. 
Every advertisement you see, every product you buy seems to be virtue signaling over the latest political cause. And forget about having a conversation with somebody that you disagree with because you might be called immoral or, or worse. How about entertainment and education? Over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of discussion about the messaging content in the entertainment that we consume in the schools that we attend. Places you thought were safe are now not Right? And you may feel like you need to run and, uh, and pull out that mask and put that gas mask back on based on the things that you're experiencing in the world. And don't forget about work. Right? What is your work environment like? Some of us are saying between, between what my company asked me to do and the people that I work with, I need a thicker mask than the one that you were wearing, Pastor Bob. You know, I was speaking with a friend recently who just simply made this comment, is there anything that's not controversial these days? You know, anything, any conversation you get into. It seems not. We are living in a toxic world. So the question this morning is, what do we need? And we need, in a word, we need some detoxicity. We need to get to a place where we can take that mask off. And yes, I know it's not technically a word, but you know what it means to detox. Whether it's a drug addict a person who's been eating bad food, somebody who's consumed too much unhealthy media. If you're detoxing from that, it hurts initially, but it feels good in the end. Now, Mark D'Augusto, our communications director, did a wonderful job with this concept that I gave to him, uh, putting this graphic together, and so you can see how there's, there's water on one side, which symbolizes the cleansing power of God in our lives. And the other side, there's all about the toxic nature of our world. And if there's anybody who can detox us, it is God himself. And that is why the Apostle Paul, after listing a litany of toxic behaviors, famously writes this to the Corinthian church in chapter 6, verse 11. He says, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you were toxic, but you were cleansed. You were washed. You were made holy. Detoxicity. That's what that verse is about. Now, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church is going to serve appropriately, I think, as the backdrop for our series. We're going to walk through um, the letter over the next eight to ten weeks. Uh, First Corinthians is a reminder of a principle my church history taught me, my church history professor taught me in seminary, and it's this. The church almost always looks like the culture that it lives in. Now, it should not, but it does. And Paul's challenge to the believers is to live counter-cultural. So let me give you a little bit of background on the church in Corinth. First, let's talk about Corinth as a city. Uh, Corinth was one of the largest and wealthiest cities of the Roman Empire. In fact, it was a, it was a miniature version of Rome. Uh, the city was filled with classical architecture and economic vitality, religious plurality, and ethnic diversity, a lot like uh, some of our major cities in America. And being a port city, it was on a strategic route making it a city of wealth and decadence. In fact, one commentator famously said, Corinth was all at once New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas rolled into one. Now, many people uh, came to faith in Jesus at Corinth, and soon after founding the church, Paul wound up leaving on the next leg of his missionary journey, and right when that happened, the church started to encounter some hardships. And let me see if this sounds familiar to us even today. Um, The first challenge they encountered was the imperial cult was revived, and this was a type of state religion where people were expected to pledge fealty to loyalty to the emperor, to bow their knee to the state, and the Christians were torn over what to do about this. The second thing that happened was the Isthmus Games were reinstated, and these were, these were a large athletic competition that was centered in Corinth. It was a great sporting event, and so the games were dedicated to the, the Olympian, the Greek gods, and people were expected again to make sacrifices, to pledge oaths to these gods, to bend their knee again. There was social pressure to engage in this, and the Christians again felt torn. And then finally, there was an economic downturn. There was, there was ancient inflation that happened, a famine The supply chain was affected. The the food supply was off. There was a famine that hit the area in AD 52 and 53, and it exacerbated the division in the church between rich and poor. And the Christians didn't always live like Christians should. So, the Corinthian church was not arguing over lockdowns, masks, 
vaccines, electric cars, inflation, or border security. But there was some stuff going on. Division was everywhere. Relationships turned toxic, even in the church. Even in the church, Christians were running very quickly to get their first century gas masks and put them on because they felt this tension. How do I live in the world but not like the world? And it's for this reason that Paul writes his letter to the church. It's in the midst of a toxic culture that Paul writes to this church that he loves and offers some correction. Now, throughout the letter, what he does is he points them to the cleansing power of the gospel in this toxic world. He calls them to a life of detoxicity. And so for the rest of our time, what I'd like to do is look at a section, the, uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and answer this question, how do we bring detoxicity to a toxic culture? Because what Paul does in the first two chapters is give us a three-part response. First, he tells us you've got to assess the problem. You have to know what's going on. Secondly, you have to become the solution. And then finally, you have to wage the ongoing war. Now, before we dive into that, let, let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for my friends who are here today, Lord. Um, Father, I, I know so many are walking in today with, with uh, challenges um, in, in different arenas of life. And Lord, I ask that you would just come and that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would lift our eyes up to you, Lord Jesus, and know that the power of the message of the cross is greater than the message of this world. Help us to cling on to that right now. Teach us, Holy Spirit, we ask in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, before Paul dives into the nature of the toxic problems plaguing Corinth, he offers a standard greeting to the believers there. And this is the way he says in verse 1. This is how the, uh, the letter starts. He says, Paul, identifying himself, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice right at the beginning of this letter that Paul does two things. The first thing he does, which I highlighted here, is that he appeals to his authority as an apostle. He says, God himself has called me, and I've seen Jesus, which is what it means to be an apostle. Now, one of the problems in Corinth is that really smart people there are actually challenging Paul's credentials. So he, he gives them right here at the opening. We'll talk more about that later. Secondly, he highlights the corporate calling of believers, that they're all part of the family of God. And that is a really important point as he seeks to address the problems in Corinth. Now, right after this, verses 4 to 9 are a continuation of this greeting uh, where Paul thanks God for the Corinthians. He highlights several key issues which are going to come up later in the letter, like spiritual gifts and the future. And in these opening verses, we can just see Paul's pastoral heart jump off the page. He wants the church to, to grow and to be effective. So in love, he then launches into the problems that he sees in the church. And he gets there in verse 10. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. All right. So now we're getting somewhere. Right, the conversation has, has left the opening um, you know, pleasantries and it's moved into the meat of the letter and it's clear that things are not going well in Corinth. And so that word appeal that I highlighted there can actually be translated as urge. Paul is raising the issue with some force right here. He, he's having an intervention. Now the question is, what is the issue? And the issue he highlights here is a lack of unity. There are divisions. And Paul wants the Corinthians to live out the heart of Jesus in his high priestly prayer from John 17, where Jesus prays that his followers would be one, as he and the Father are one. Now, what are the issues causing division? Well, the rest of the letter and how it's structured is a laundry list of issues that Paul addresses in response to a letter he's already received, and it serves as the body of the letter. So let me just highlight uh, some of these issues, and you can easily see where there's some overlap between the Corinthians and our modern-day church. And I put these kind of uh, the outline here for you on the screen. The first issue was is the issue of factions, which you gather here. 
As it's clear from these opening verses, the church has divided into factions or smaller tribal groups gathering around a specific leader. Paul bluntly points this out in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 1. But this comes back up in chapter 4 of the letter, which we'll get to next week. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says this, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he just simply asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, I love Paul because um, he doesn't beat around the bush here. Right? Paul gets right to it. Because apparently the believers were falling prey to some sort of cult of personality. And in Corinth, <clears throat> a group of Greek philosophers loved engaging in rhetorical debate contests. And Paul was being accused of not having great rhetorical skill, whereas somebody like Apollos had real, a really great debating ability. And this may have partly been behind Paul's comments. But you can see the parallels here, right? I mean, if, if you browse the religion section of your favorite news source, you're going to find some article about how evangelicals nowadays are divided along race and political persuasion or our view of biblical morality. The problems of Corinth are enduring, which is one of the letters that people, one of the reasons people love this letter. A second issue is the issue of sexuality. Right? It takes center stage in chapters 5 to 7 of the letter. And you may be shocked to learn that there were some shady activities happening in the church of Corinth. For example, in chapter 5, we learn there was a man sleeping with his stepmother. Homosexuality and sexual sin are on Paul's vice list in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is devoted to the benefits of singleness and appropriate sexual expression in marriage. So make sure you come back for that week. Pastor Dave's going to be preaching on that. Now again, these issues are very relevant because what is more controversial, pressing, or divisive today than our views on things like LGBT issues, or the hookup culture, or the purpose of sexuality? Paul covers it all in the letter. A third issue is the issue of power. First century power dynamics are a, are a major theme in the letter. For example, Paul alludes to this in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, many commentators think this verse has a twofold aim. First, Paul highlights the power of the simple gospel. And secondly, it's, he's also, they also think he's taking a swipe at Christians who are appealing too much to powerful cultural elites of their day. That was a major issue in Corinth. In the culture, it was customary for wealthy patrons to use their monetary influence to get what they wanted, even in the church which highlights a huge difference between the rich and the poor Christians, the kind of wealth and equality, you might say. Now, Paul addresses this issue more specifically in chapter 6, where a bunch of rich Christians are bringing lawsuits against one another. And then again in chapter 12, there's wealth disparities that are being seen even at the Lord's table. Christians have to be mindful, and this is the point, when we relate to the power structures of the current age. Historian Carl Truman Church historian Carl Truman recently wrote an article in the journal First Things where he was warning Christians against making too many appeals to secular cultural elites. After all, he writes, Jesus told us that the world will hate us. Truman observes this. He says, Christianity tells the world what it does not wish to hear. We should not expect to be embraced by those whose thoughts and deeds contradict the truths of our faith. And this parallels Corinth. Right, there was a concept in first century Corinth called Romanitas. It was an underlying ideology in Corinthian culture because this worldview, the one that Paul was combating, proclaimed that Rome was the kingdom of God on earth. The Roman Empire was all-powerful. It was worthy of worship. And this belief manifested itself in every building that was built, every flag that flapped in the breeze in Corinth. Power! The Corinthian Christians were attracted to this power. They wanted to be on the in crowd. They desired the respect of the empire. And Paul says, be careful. I'm speaking of a different power found in the gospel. Another issue that's in the letter and really is kind of the chief sin of, of the Bible and of Christians of every age is the issue of idolatry or worshiping something other than God. And this was especially true in Corinth. Um, as mentioned earlier, this was a prominent issue and it, and it highlights 
Uh, Paul highlights this in chapters 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians, specifically covering food sacrificed to idols. And it was a prominent issue for the Corinthian Christians because of the problems the city was facing at large, because there was great social pressure, again, to conform to Roman societal standards, even if they went against the gospel. And then finally, and this is probably what 1 Corinthians is known most for, it's the issue of spiritual arrogance. That's the final issue that takes center stage, um, in, in, specifically as it relates to spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14, where the Corinthians were kind of thinking they, they were a big deal. And this, again, was a customary expectation in Corinthian culture, because if you had more knowledge, you were supposed to flaunt it and look down on people. That was an expectation. Now, the bottom line is this. Many of these issues facing the Corinthian Christians were norms from secular culture that made their way into the church, and the church did not exercise enough discernment. And so commentator David Garland sums it up this way. He says the young Corinthian church had absorbed the culture around it. And that culture consisted of values that were antithetical to the message of the cross. Secular wisdom, which reflected the code of conduct for the social elites who jostled one another for power, prestige, and popularity. It had its hold on the members of the church. Its values played havoc on Paul's attempt to build a community based on love, selflessness, and the equal worth of every member. In other words, Corinthian culture was toxic, and the Corinthians had become beholden to it. So, given all that, do you think the church at Corinth is relevant for today? Have any of those issues manifested themselves in the American church in 2022? Because many people in the church have felt like the last three to five years have brought division to our world and our churches. And they have. But I wonder if it is the crucible of a pandemic, perhaps, and other things that have come in that have exposed our weaknesses. In fact, the last few years have shown us the need for Christians to think deeply and critically about complex issues. And many people have not been prepared for that. Dare I say, we've allowed the culture and an extremely toxic American culture at that, to influence our thinking. We're in the same place the Corinthians were. Krista Bontrager is a theologian and cultural commentator. She runs a podcast called Theology Mom, and she was a speaker at one of our recent Underground Sessions events. Uh, she wrote a, a really helpful article recently, and she, she says this. She says, the events of the last two years in, in America have served as a global pop quiz. I love that, I love that image. Um, Christians had to get up to speed very quickly about what the Bible says on a variety of topics. Now, can you guess these topics? Are you ready? Justice, freedom, economics, race relations, civil disobedience, the relationship between church and state, looting, diversity, equity, inclusion, homosexuality, transracial adoption, gay marriage, shouting your abortion, and even the definition of a boy or a girl. Now, let me just pause and say, <laughs> that's a lot of issues. And how many in the audience today have thought deeply and biblically about those issues? Have our opinions been shaped more by our favorite cable news host than by searching the scriptures? In fact, this is, thinking deeply about this is one of the, it's one of the reasons we have our underground sessions ministry. Uh, we try to cover topics like this with the spirit of grace and point people to the scriptures. And I just want to highlight two events that are coming up down the road. Uh, first, in November, we have author Os Guinness, who's going to be with us to talk about the state of our culture. And then, um, I'm really excited about this, in January, we're going to host our first ever weekend conference focused on apologetics, and we're calling it the Contend Conference from Jude 3. We have three excellent speakers coming to help us think through and live out our faith in, in today's world. That's January 27th to 29th, 2023. Save the date. These events are crucial because Krista Bontrager offers a pretty sobering picture for the church. She continues in her article. She says, unfortunately, this pop quiz was administered at a time when basic biblical literacy in our country is very low. According to the recent Barna study, 60% of millennials identify as Christian, but only 2% actually have a biblical worldview. That figure goes up to 5% for Gen X, and this is what she says. She says, this means that very few Christians have robust, ready, biblical responses to the issues I just mentioned. Now, I want to say that one more time. Very few Christians have robust, 
ready biblical responses to these complex issues. And they are complex issues. And you say, why, why are you bringing that up? Well, I'm bringing that up because the issues are dividing churches, right? Issues that are causing people to leave churches, to block longtime friends on social media, to end fellowship. Why? Because it's easier to end a conversation, to hang up, to find somebody you agree with and run back to your house and put the gas mask back on. It feels easier to do that. And yet, studies tell us that the vast majority of Christians don't have a solid biblical worldview to actually discuss these issues. And so I just want to state the obvious. No wonder the church is divided. No wonder. It's the exact same thing that Paul is writing about to the Corinthian church. Let me bring you back to verse 10. What did Paul say? He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, what's Paul saying? He's urging, he's pleading, he's appealing to the church in the name of Jesus, become united. Jesus himself prayed that you would be one as I and the Father are one. Now, how do you do that? Let me draw your attention to three words that I highlighted here. The first one is Lord. If you're a Christian, if your heart is regenerated, if you've been born from above, Jesus Christ is your Lord. That means he rules your life. He's not your homeboy. He's not your boyfriend. He is not your self-help guru. He's not your blue check on, that you follow on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. He is your Lord. And listen, there, there's reasons that people leave churches, you know, solid theological reasons, but too many churches divide where people leave over minor issues because we've not seriously grasped the fact that Jesus is Lord of our lives. Second, that word mind means that people are to be unified and have the same mind, the same outlook. In fact, Paul concludes chapter 2 by saying that if you're a Christian, we have the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ, he asks in verse 13, can Christ be divided? The third word is judgment. And that takes that second concept a step further because if we have the same mind as Christ, we still have the same understanding of the world and reality. And that doesn't mean we can't disagree about some issues. We can't come to different conclusions about things. But, if you, have a Christ, but you have a Christian view of the world and reality. The problem is this. We, like the Corinthians, have too much allowed the culture to disciple us. We need to bring our mind back under the authority of Christ. Otherwise, we're going to simply become players in a toxic culture that we live in. Detoxicity requires the mind of Christ. And it's only then that we get to point number two. We have to become the solution. Not, not, not understand the solution, become the solution. In verses 18 to 31, Paul sets up this dichotomy that he's already alluded to in verse 17. It's a twofold strategy where he teaches us how to combat the toxicity of our culture and churches. It shows us how to become the solution. And it's right there in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the what? It's the power of God. The word of the cross. And the Greek word is logos for word, right? From John 1, it means message. If you want to be somebody who helps detox our world, you have to understand the message of the cross. Because, you know, communications people talk about how we need to get our messaging right. Now, what's the message of the cross? It's this, right? God himself came to earth. God himself took on the penalty for our sin. God himself was spit on. He was mocked. He was stripped of his clothes his flesh was ripped off his back. He was hung naked in front of a bunch of people he didn't know and this crowd that was chanting, crucify him. He died a humiliating death. Now think about that. It's everything that's opposite of that Romanista worldview. It's the opposite of worldly power. It's about sacrifice and humility and love and forgiveness. For the word of the cross is what? It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's through the cross that Jesus achieves victory for us. Now what's interesting is the cross and the resurrection actually bookend 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1 focuses on the cross. Chapter 15 focuses on the resurrection. And in between the cross and the resurrection, that's all the issues we need to work on. Now, now how does the message of the cross help us combat a toxic culture? Well, firstly, I would say, from verse 18, it calls us to expose the folly of the world system. 
Paul says the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And that word means ridiculous, it means ridiculous thought. In other words, he's saying that everybody in the world who thinks that they're wise, they're actually missing the point. Now, you say, well, how do I expose the folly of the world? And I would say you need to understand the culture around you. Um, I had the privilege to teach our teenagers on Wednesday night during the month of March and into April for four weeks, and we covered a series on worldview and culture. The first week, we talked about what culture is, and my favorite definition is just simply this. Culture is what human beings make of the world. We create because we're made in the image of a creative God. And that creation manifests itself in four parts. First, in the culture, there's ideas. There's ideas out there in the culture, and they spread through champions, right? People who tell the story of cultural ideas. That's your artists, your social media influencers, uh, news people, etc. And, and then that culture is made up of artifacts, Things like movies and TV shows and music and so on. They, they, what they do is they normalize the ideas that are created, and then those ideas are further normalized in institutions like government and schools and church. Um, now, one of the exercises we did was ask the teens to go back and start noticing messages they heard in the shows they watched, in the music they listened to, in the people they followed on social media. And once they heard about these messages, once they were thinking that way, they could start evaluating idea, these ideas in light of a Christian worldview. And so if you want to expose the folly of the world, I would, exp- I would encourage you, go back and do the same exercise. Notice the subtle and not-so-subtle worldview messages in culture. What does culture think is normal? That's when you can expose the toxic nature of it. But it's not simply enough to notice the message. You have to combat it. You have to bring the message of the cross to bear on the secular worldview's flaws. You have to unleash its power. Or put another way, we need to become dynamite. Now I say that because the Greek word for power that Paul uses is the word dunamis, and it's where we get our English word dynamite from. Now think about dynamite for just a second. What's its purpose? Dynamite is a chemical explosive, and it's used in road construction and mining where workers put the dynamite in a rock so that they could clear away for something else to be built. In other words, dynamite, it blows things up so that something new could be built. Now, to become the solution... You need to be dynamite that exposes the folly of the world's system. The Roman worldview was based on power and the glory of Rome. And what did it do? It caused division. It destroyed destroyed people because it focused on ruthless, self-interested advancement. And that's what was getting into the church. That was what was so toxic. Now, I need to offer a caveat here because I think it ties nicely in with Corinthians. It's become popular in recent years for Christians within the church to take an analogy like this and then use it against the church itself. I am not suggesting that Christians should become dynamite against the church or their own worldview. Now, you might object and say, well, Pastor Bob, does that mean that I can't ask questions about the church or my faith? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying there's a difference between healthy, honest questions and a belligerent skepticism. The latter becomes detrimental. Author Alicia Childers wrote a book recently entitled Another Gospel. A lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. It's it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. In the book, she tells her story of attending a progressive church that sought to subversively blow up orthodox biblical beliefs, and it caused her to reexamine her faith and discover what is true. And so she went on this long journey of questioning, and her faith became stronger. And here's how she critiques progressive Christianity as she concludes her book. She says this, We don't get to completely redefine who God is and how he works in the world and call it Christian. We don't get to make the rules and do what's right in our own eyes and yet claim to be followers of Jesus. Our only option is to do it his way or not at all. His name is Truth. He is love, his gospel is bloody, and his way is beautiful, for God so loved the world. Now, there's nothing new that's under the sun. In Corinth, this similar dynamic was happening. Christians were questioning things like the resurrection, the very foundation of their faith. And Paul writes a response. He writes 1 Corinthians 15. He discusses in detail the truth, reality, and foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his conclusion is this. If the resurrection is not true, our faith is worthless. 
That's how important this doctrine is. If you lose that belief, your faith is worthless. So when I say dynamite, I'm not talking about blowing up the church. I'm talking about exposing a secular worldview that dominates the world. That secular worldview is false. It's folly. The message of the cross should expose its flaws. The message of the cross blows up that secular worldview. And if we're people who expose the false narratives of the world that lead to division, we also clear the way for healing truth to come in as well. So look at how Paul dismantles this Roman power in verses 20 to 25. He says this, Who is the one who is wise? Who is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power, the dunamis, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. What is he saying? He's saying that the world's wisdom, which many of the elite philosophers thought was the answer, he's saying it can't solve your problems. The message of the cross blows up that world system. Secularism worships the king of power and prestige, but Christians worship a king who was crucified on a tree. And that message, ironically, is the hope of the world. It's the message of an upside-down kingdom where love and humility rule. And that's where Paul finishes chapter 1. Look at his call to the Corinthians. He says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Have you ever wondered why our culture is so toxic? Have you ever turned on the news, scrolled through your news... uh, Scroll through your newsfeed, talk with your coworkers or even your fellow church members, and asked, "How did we get here? Right? Why do things seem so wrong? Why, why did cancel culture ever become a thing?" And I think a major reason is that we believe that we're the center of the world. In some ways, we raised a generation to believe that. When we're the center of the universe, we don't focus on others. We have to maintain the illusion that we're better than others. And when we have to believe that, we will stop at nothing to put others down, to keep our perceived power. This leads to ruthless self-advancement, and it's toxic. And Paul's argument here runs counter to that thought. He calls us to believe a better narrative. Remember, he says. I saw a quote the other day from one of my friends, ironically on social media, who, who said this. Really great quote. He said this, Remembering is not about recalling facts. Remembering is about centering our lives on what is true. Now that to me was a wow quote. Because if remembering is just about recalling facts, I can get a better grade and show you up. But if remembering is about what's, what's true, orienting ourselves to what's true, we get to move in the same direction. We all have the same mind. Now sadly, we live in a world where we can't agree on what's real and true anymore. For the Corinthians, who love to boast in themselves... Paul reminds them that you came from somewhere. Remember. And he continues. He says, instead, God chose the things the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. That is life in the upside-down kingdom. That's the way of detoxicity. It's about humility. It's about boasting in the right things. So look how he finishes in verse 31. He says, therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. So what's our problem? Culture has discipled us to boast in ourselves. What's the solution? Blow up that view. Instead, humbly point people to Jesus so that when people look at your life, they see him. In other words, boast in the right things. Our culture, like that of Corinth, is always telling us to live for ourselves, and it's created a toxic world. We're walking around, again, with these gas masks on. But living out, we should live out the message of the gospel. That's the solution. And the solution is not a one-time event. It's a daily choice. And that's briefly our last point. You have to wage the ongoing war. 
Wage the ongoing war. If you want to be a person of detoxicity, you need to constantly wage war against the wisdom of the world. John Stone Street, who's the host of the Breakpoint podcast, often says this, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. There is an ongoing war in our world and what causes this continual toxic culture is a battle over ideas that capture hearts. And what we need is to be people who champion the message of the cross, which paves the way for a culture of detoxicity. It's a war of glory, friends. And that's where Paul takes us in 1 Corinthians 2. He says this in verse 6. He says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now, I mentioned in the opening section that the last two years have been this kind of global pop quiz that has exposed areas of our lives where we need to think more biblically. Well, the wisdom of this age stands in direct opposition to the wisdom that comes from God himself. The wisdom of this age is informed by a secular view of the world where God's absent. And there's one catch. Once we, put, once we assess the problem, once we seek to become the solution, we need to, we, then we, it's then that we need wisdom to navigate the issues. But we need the right kind of wisdom. So if you're a parent or a grandparent here today, are you not trying to figure out how to raise your kids in a complex and hostile world where even the nature of reality is shifting? Right, there's questions being asked right now which were unfathomable 20 years ago. If you're a teenager, doesn't it seem like there's social pressure in your schools to conform to the wisdom of this age? How do you navigate your faith on a daily basis? Because when I was in high school 20, 25 years ago, I could say I was a Christian and garner some respect, but now I'd probably be called names. If you're in a career... How do you navigate the various challenges that are coming your way from your company or your institution? Your values maybe used to, used to align with them, but now they make you uncomfortable. What do you do? We need a different kind of wisdom. Verse 7, Paul says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. So verse 7 stands in direct opposition to verse 6. We can live by the wisdom of this age, or you can rely on the secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now, what does that mean? The secret wisdom refers to the power of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul will go on in the rest of chapter 2 to talk about the ability of the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes to spiritual thinking. And this is Paul's summation. Basically, he's been contrasting the wisdom that comes from worldly powers and the simple message of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if we all recognize that we were sinners in need of a savior, the toxic nature of our culture would lower. And why do I say that? Because secular wisdom divides, but the wisdom from God breaks down barriers and pulls people together. It's based on the power of the cross, and at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And if we're going to end the toxic culture around us, we don't just need right doctrine, but we need to be engaged in right living. The two go hand in hand. Look at how Paul makes the final contrast in verses 8 and 9. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And when Paul talks about the rulers of this age, he's specifically talking about the political leaders who stood in opposition to Jesus. They wanted to keep their power. They thought they were so wise, but their wisdom was based on this age. It was secular. It was not cross-power. If they only knew the secret wisdom that comes from God and had fallen in love with them, Paul says. And that is what we need to change our world. We need to be people who love God and live out the power of the cross. Because you know, often, people in the church, they'll get upset. We'll get upset about politics. That's divided the church. But politics... The issue, political issues we argue about are actually downstream of culture. And then we get upset about the culture, right? We fight the culture war, and, and don't get me wrong, there are important issues to advocate for in our cultural moment. But culture is downstream of religion and philosophy. And that's why I say the solution to all this is the gospel. It's the message of the cross. Because if we disciple people into that, the rest is gonna take care of itself. If our heart is for God, if we love him and have his heart for others, the world will become less toxic. 
Transformed hearts are the key to detoxicity. Our culture's toxic, yes. Many of us are walking around again with this, this symbolic gas mask on, attempting to protect ourselves from the people around us. But what we need to do is to assess the problem, is to become the solution, and then wage the ongoing war. And that war continues in our hearts each and every day. So over the next two months, here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into the issues that Paul raises. Here's a sampling of the issues we're covering over the next two months. We're going to talk next week about toxic leaders. That's chapter four, remember? We're going to talk about toxic communities, toxic romances, right? Toxic disagreements, toxic worship, and just toxic spirituality in general. And as we go through the series, I would invite you to ask yourself this question. How can I become an antioxidant in a toxic world? How can I bring detoxicity to this world? And the answer, again, is in the way Paul bookends the letter. Rely on the power of the cross and hope in the reality of the resurrection. Point people to that. It's the simple gospel message that Paul preaches. It changes everything. It breaks, it removes the barrier of this mask. It makes us humble. It makes us courageous. It cuts to the heart of every issue we face. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the dunamis. It is the power of God. So let's be dynamite for God's glory. Let's clear the way so something new and beautiful can be built. It starts with us. So let me invite the worship team to come on stage. They're going to they're lead us in one final song. Um, and as they come and play... What I'd like to do is invite you to take just a moment at the end of the service here um, to ask this question. How can I bring detoxicity to my spheres of influence? Because so often we think the problem with the world, the problem with our relationships is everyone else. Everyone else is toxic but me. What is the area of your life where God is asking you to become the antioxidant? Detoxicity begins with us. Let's be the people who love God and who cry out to him. And I want to invite you just to take a few minutes to pray about that, to think about that. The worship team is going to vamp right now, and then they'll lead us in one final song as we close.